Oh, hi guys. It's Gene Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And um, I don't know, for me, I almost feel like this is Friday. This is a, a Friday kind of show I have lined up for you. Um, but we did it because we're just coming out of this huge event. Tales of the Cocktail was a monster this year with, I, I mean, literally hundreds of events all over the city. It's, it's a spectacular festival. I assume all of my guests attended it, and um, we're going to talk about both the festival but also just about cocktails, the history of them. Um, I actually brought in a special um, crafted... Um, uh, old-fashioned. My f- husband wants me to call it Bob's Bourbon. I think we can get sexier than that, but for now, that'll have to do. And um, I have with me uh, three guests, and I hope online. Can I? Is my online guy ready? Okay. Um, hi. So this is Gene Nathan, and um, uh. I'm going to catch everybody's day. Well, you know what? Why don't you start by introducing yourselves, and then I'll get my guy on the phone to introduce himself. Go ahead. Uh, Jennifer Oblenis. I've been in the city of New Orleans for 18 years and been in the service industry the entire time and have done everything from serving to coffee to bartending, uh, brand ambassadoring, um, and I have a, an event bartending company that, yeah, pretty much everything you name as far as serving or pouring cocktails, I've been involved. And I wanted to dub you as a free spirit <laughs> in the spirit world. And? Uh, my name is Waits Lassiter. I've been in town for about seven years now, uh, mainly serving, but I took the jump to bartending a couple of years ago. And uh, my wife and I are celebrating our one-year anniversary running the bar program at Root, upstairs from Square Root, not that CBD nonsense. Uh, it'll be one year next month. And this is going to, you guys are kind of legendary already. You, 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 you're, you, you're out there. We know about you. And, and then on the phone, Wayne Curtis, are you there? I'm here. And Wayne Curtis is um, noteworthy also now because he is the winner of the best cocktail and spirits writer um, uh, for by the uh, Tales of the Cocktail uh, Spirited Awards, and he's the author of a book called "End a Bottle of Rum: A History of the New World in Ten Cocktails," and he's written frequently about cocktail spirits, travel history for many publications, including all the big guys: The Atlantic, New York Times, Punch, The Daily Beast, Sunset, Wall Street Journal, Garden and Gun. You get around, huh, Wayne? I try to. <laughs> and I'm so sorry you're not here in the studio because I brought in one of my three or f- I probably have about a total of five um, vintage cocktail books. This one, I wonder if you know about it, is called the Savoy Cocktail Book. And the date of publication on this, it was... Let's see, it's the cocktail recipes in this book have been compiled by Harry Craddock of the Savoy Hotel in London, and it was published in 1930. And this book is the most beautiful. It is so gorgeous because it has incredible illustrations and has all these exotic cocktails from back in the day. Blood and Sand Cocktail, for example, the Bloodhound cocktail, 
Blue Devil cocktail, Castle Dip cocktail, Cat's Eye cocktail, and and so on. Um, and it's just a beautiful book. I have, as I say, I don't. I like cocktails. I always have preferred cocktails actually to wine. And I at one time was doing some PR for the Maison de Ville Hotel. Um, in the French Quarter, and that is the home of Peixo. And I said, hey, guys, why don't we have sort of like cocktail events? This was back in about 1984, and they, they, they didn't quite get it, and we didn't do it. And here we are, what, 20-some years later? 30, 30-some years later, and, of course, cocktails have become the rage. Now, why, first of all, tell, somebody tell me why did we circle back to the importance of cocktails? What's, what's your history on why this happened? Let me hear first from Wayne on that. Well, it's, it's, uh, it, it goes through cycles. There's, there's been big booms in cocktails in the 1860s, 1890s, 1910, then during Prohibition it sort of moved underground, 1950s it, there was a resurgence of martinis in Manhattan, 1970s was sort of the dark ages of, uh, of uh, somewhat spooky drinks, uh, overly sweet, and then and, uh, it just was time to come back around, and uh, people, a lot, it really came out of the history, I think a lot of the people who really instigated it, uh, my first tale to the cocktail was in 2005, and a lot of the people who were there were drawn because of the history, they found some of these old cocktail books like the Savoy, and they were fascinated by them, and they wanted to know what the drinks tasted like, what the culture was when people were drinking them. Uh, they were hampered a little bit by the fact that they couldn't get a lot of the liqueurs and some of the spirits in the book. But in the past uh, 10 years or so, pretty much everything has been made available again. Uh, they've, they've tracked it down or recreated it. And, and uh, so many of the new cocktails, which I uh, definitely um, will admit to imbibing at restaurants, uh, the first thing I do when I go to a restaurant, whether a new one or one I've been to, is check out the cocktail menu and analyze it thoroughly, or go down the list and try to figure out what I really want to try. And um, I like drinks that have some sweetness in them but are not too sweet, and I, I prefer um, some kind of a fruit ingredient. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, as I said, um, I, I'm from I'm from I'm a, a reformed Yankee, so I'm from the East Coast. Where when I grew up, bourbon was not um, part of our culture. You know, it was scotch or it was um, martinis, and uh, it was a, just a much more limited um, menu of things that people drank. But for some reason, I got hooked on bourbon. One of my boyfriends was a bourbon drinker, and oh my God, when I came to New Orleans and I had my first mint julep, woof. I just, that was it. I was, I was, you know, I used to go up to the roof of the Royal Orleans Hotel. I worked for WDSU, which was right next door. And at the end of the day, I would go up to the pool at the Royal Orleans, and they made great mint jobs. And that would give me the courage to dive off the, um, in the pool and just have a blast. So I don't really, I've never been somebody who drinks for the effect. I really drink more for the taste, but of course that was definitely for the effect. So, um, all right, here's what I want to start with, um, really. So, when I read into this a little bit, just superficially, so there's, there's a lot of, of course, quibbling over this history, but the history of the cocktail that I read was that Pace Show is really one of the 
source is one of the origins of the cocktail because he was a pharmacist and he introduces bitters. And, but on the other hand, um, there's people who are claiming um, other origins, including in London. So uh, get me to the bottom of this, Wayne. Let, let me understand. What, what, what is your interpretation of the history of the cocktail? Well, the, the, the story about uh, Antoine Amade Peychaud and his Peychaud bitters going into a drink and the drink served in an egg cup, which was pronounced in French, coquier, and then the Americans who visited the French Quarter couldn't pronounce that and mangled it and it became cocktail. That story's been enshrined. It was in Stanley Clisby Arthur's book about New Orleans drinks. H.L. Mencken repeated the story. And if you go to this, if you go tonight and stand down across from 427 Royal Street where Peychaud's third pharmacy was, I guarantee you will hear a tour guide come by and tell that story there again as well. Uh, the problem with it is, is uh, it runs aground on the, the hard shoals of chronology. Uh, the uh, Antoine Amade Peychaud came. He was uh, among the, the uh, refugees. Uh, his family was among the refugees that came up from uh, Haiti around specifically in New York, because that was the counter. I, I read something about that also. Then, if that's true, then where did it start? It got its start uh, around 1800, and exactly where, nobody quite sure, and there's still a fair amount of debate over where the name comes from. You can read a lot of fanciful stories about how people stirred it with a, a rooster's tail. Uh, others say that, and I think this is more plausible, that, that the original cocktail, which was just a, a simple one in, in sugar, alcohol, and bitters, and that was it. That that was a morning drink. You had that in the morning to get your blood thinned and your heart going, and so it was the tail of the cock, and you had a cocktail. The other plausible explanation of it is that it, uh, at the same time you see a lot of you know, uh, references in horse racing to cocktail horses, which were different than the thoroughbred horses in that they were a mixed breed and that they had different lines in them, and I, I think that makes sense because at the same time you're having a cocktail. It's not pure spirits, but it has sugar and bitters mixed into it. So it's not okay, but well now I'm really confused because the bitters part, again, I thought Pecho was the inventor of bitter, bitters. Oh, no. Not no, true. No, no. Okay. No, no. There'd, been, there'd been bitters before that. Bitters were just medicinal. They were, uh, it was just barks, you know, citrus peels, herbs, spices, steeped in alcohol to pull out their flavors and perceived uh, medicinal benefits. And then you would shake a little bit in some water and have it in the morning if you're to settle your stomach. And somewhere along the line, people found it went pretty well with uh, whiskey. And even if, though it no longer had medicinal claims, people liked the taste of it and it persisted. So there's been bitters for quite some time. <laughs> so that's, that's – okay, so then what did Peychaud do? Peychaud was one of many people producing bitters. He opened his pharmacy. I believe it was the most recent research suggests in the 1820s or 30s originally over on uh, off of Exchange Alley, uh, and he was a pharmacist, and he sold bitters. And, uh, and apparently it was a family recipe that had been brought up from Haiti. Uh, so they have a, you know, almost all the bitters companies, including the most famous, Angostura, zealously guard their bitters recipes so nobody can copy them. 
Peixotes had his own family recipe, and he produced, he compounded his bitters uh, you know, on Exchange Alley, then on Royal Street, and sold them to customers. And uh, just like probably another dozen people were doing in the city of New Orleans at the same time. But uh, as things always go, somebody emerges as the you know, brand and the big name as opposed to other people who right. do the same thing. I'm familiar with this from my art world experience. So there are artists who will do something extraordinary, but it'll just be unknown, and then somebody else does it, and they get all the credit. So his shows was really number two. Angostura sort of dominated, lived the longest, and became the standard bidders during the sort of dark ages. But his shows was always there, sort of the distant number two, and now it's it's caught up and. Now it tells of the cocktail this year. You go to the marketplace there, and there was probably 300 different bidders there. That's wow. up from up from you know half dozen ten years ago. So there's another um, alcohol, another uh, drink that uh, has a uh, complicated uh, recipe in it that um, I I ask people. I, I would say almost weekly to try to understand, and, and nobody has the answer. So I'm a Campari drinker. I like uh -huh. Campari. And again, my husband makes me all different kinds of drinks that we concoct with Campari. And I keep asking people, well, what is Campari? I have never gotten an answer. It, here's the simple answer. It's, it's an Amaro, or you could call it an aperitivo. It's an Italian uh, drink that was uh, concocted in the 19th century, and it, it, like bitters, is one of dozens and dozens of different similar drinks. Uh, it's, got, it's, related, it's actually related to vermouth. In some ways, it's related to Fernet Branca. All these are, many of them from northern Italy, as is Campari. It's basically uh, alcoholic spirit, and then it, and it has, like Angostura bitters, it has different elements put into it. Campari is pretty heavy on, like, dried orange peel uh, that are put into alcohol and infused, uh, and other things that, are, that go into it, uh, probably things like angelica root and cardamom, things like that typically go into uh, different bitters. As well as vermouth. Vermouth is different in that it tends to be steeped in wine. That's uh, vermouth is uh, an aromatized wine. And uh, Campari and Aperol and Montenegro and some of these other ones that are more on the Amaro side are uh, steeped in neutral grain spirits or brandy or some harder spirit. What is Amaro? What, how did you say that? Amaro. Amaro. It's an Italian word. It just means bitter. And uh, it, so what would you describe Campari as <laughs> its main uh, flavor profile. It's got it's a real bitter. bitterness. Yeah. And it's, uh, that was, uh, that's a desirable thing. Again, it comes from medicinal era. People used to drink them to settle their stomach. You have to remember just how many gastrointestinal ailments people had in the 19th century because of lack of hygiene and lack of refrigeration. But everyone was looking for something to settle their stomach. And a bitter was thought to uh, help speed your digestion to move things through your stomach because Genetically, we're trained. If you taste something bitter in your mouth, your body sets off alarms and it's saying poison, 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 and you speed up your digestion to move it through. So the thought was that if you take a little bitter liqueur, uh, and it helps move your digestion, speed your digestion up and move out whatever it is. How interesting. That's fascinating. So actually, that opens up another question for me, and I'm going to want to bring my um, in-studio guests into the discussion. But... Um, 
And actually, I wanted to ask you if either one of you are familiar with any Campari recipes that I should know about because it is many, <laughs> many, okay, many. I, I am a Campari drinker as well, so oh, I, I have many ways to drink. Okay, Campari. so I can't wait to get some of those. But um, you open up the idea of um, people treating cocktails as actually something that theoretically has some healthy ingredients when we normally think of alcohol, of course, as dangerous. And now there's new theories in the health world that, oh, like a, somebody who uh, drinks lightly during the week, one or two drinks or something, that this is actually healthier than not. I happen to have a theory about that theory, and my theory is that um, it isn't so much what's in the alcohol as that a person who drinks a couple drinks a week probably has a slightly more relaxed attitude towards life and is maybe not as stressed out as people who don't do any drinking at all and that that's really a factor. But I don't know. That's just my little instinctive that's theory. That's the southern way of thinking about it. Is it? Okay. Well, that means I'm actually now a reformed Yankee, which I, I claim, but I don't know that I have the right to. Well, let's talk about Campari for a minute, if you don't mind. I'd like to continue with it. So. Let me hear my guests. Um, you know, Root, as I said, has become a legendary place for cocktails. Haven't been there yet, but I'm going to come. You have an excuse now. I, I do? What's my excuse? Well, now we know each other. Okay, well, that's not an excuse. <laughs> that is a, that's a, a, a kind of command that I need to get there. Let's call it an incentive. Incentive is the right word. All right, so um, tell me, first of all, uh, about some Campari drinks, and then let's move on. For all three of you, I'd like to hear you tell me kind of your personal favorites, your top ideas in, 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 uh, in the way of, of drinks, and why. So let's start with Campari. Uh, Campari is such a versatile cocktail ingredient. I mean, immediately you're looking at the historical Americano, and then you get into Negronis, then you start getting into the Boulevardier territory, where it's such an easy plug-and-play of, like, spirit, Campari, and vermouth. And it's, it's such it – op- once you understand those ratios, it opens up an entire world of different flavor profiles that so you can So when you say spirit, with. you mean just – any any spirit. Any so, booze. You know, I've done I've done gin, I've done bourbon, and so on. If you haven't taken a shot of tequila and Campari together, <gasps> ooh. ooh yeah yeah. Ooh, I very, didn't know. I good. didn't think of that. <laughs> yes, very. Good. You want to talk about getting your life right right <laughs> off the bat? There you go. That sounds great. What about you, Jennifer? Um, so I, through the work that I've done, may had a relationship with. Uh, Campari, where I helped them through Negroni Week, which we just passed. And just exactly what he was saying, it's, it's you basically take almost equal parts, depending on the recipe you like, of gin or vodka or tequila or whiskey or bourbon or rye, add Campari, add a vermouth of some sort, and that makes a good cocktail. But at the beginning of late spring, early summer, when the weather was just starting to be constantly warm and everybody wanted to drink rosé all day, I came up with a Campari ginger rosé spritz. Ooh, I like that. That literally could drink all day. (laughs) Campari, rosé, and what? Like ginger. um, You could use a ginger syrup. You could use ginger ale or ginger beer. I think the ginger beer kind of overpowers it a bit. I could see that. Um, Yeah. But, you know, it depends on your ratios and and, uh, like a little bit of a fizzy, sparkling uh, rosé. Well, what's interesting about that is that, of course, ginger has always been credited as something that can settle your stomach. So, again, it comes back to that idea of the, um, you call it a digestive? Mm-hmm. Digestive. And, right. Yeah. And, and, Wayne, what about you on the Campari? Any? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a Negroni fan. I, I 
really love a Negroni. It's fun because you can play around with different vermouths and different gins, and it makes the change. That's for winter, and then once the weather warms up, we'll at the gym, at club soda for an Americano. And that's, uh, I think, one of the most refreshing and one of the easiest drinks. So wait, so you would add the... Um, Two equal parts red vermouth and Campari, top it up with club soda and ice, put a nice big piece of orange peel in there, and Bob's your own. Fantastic. Now, have you, any of you ever seen the old Picayune cookbook? And so I should have brought I've that. I've seen many variations. Okay. Yeah. So in that book, what's fascinating is that they have, a, a, again, a whole huge section on drinks, not uh, just, um, of course, cocktails, but literally something that they call shrubs, which I have no idea what a shrub is, and then all kinds of sort of summer drinks for the heat. And immediately you, you picture... Um, Burl Ives on the porch in um, one of the uh, famous Southern movies, uh, I think one of the Tennessee William movies, and, and you have this notion of, you know, needing a cold drink but with interesting uh, ingredients in the South. So um, what about that? I am all about that shrub life. What is a shrub? Uh, so uh, the common conception of a shrub is you uh, take fresh produce and then add vinegar to it to uh, aid in a natural fermentation process. But that means that you're also sipping on vinegar at the same time, which can be properly approached, but it's not an ideal. Like, I don't want to drink vinegar as a refreshing beverage. But it is healthy for you. Oh, it very is. Yeah. I'm not always doing things because I'm healthy in life, though. <laughs> okay. Uh, but if you, uh, if you go back to the old, old methods of shrubbing, uh, you just chop up your produce super, super fine and cover it in sugar. And then cover that in cheesecloth so it can breathe. And by, like, the next morning, you're seeing bubbles of fermentation. It takes, like, a week, and all of a sudden you have two completely different flavors infused together. It can be, like, you know, something as diverse as pears and jalapenos, blackberries and thyme. And uh, all of a sudden you have this incredible flavor that you can immediately add in to modify these classic cocktail concepts. Any addition to that from my other friends here? Yeah, he, he explained it very well. Um, yeah, I've done a couple different recipes. I've done watermelon basil and many things. It's Some people these days, because of the kombuchas that are out now, are also calling shrubs drinking vinegars. Um, depends on whether you're really trying to do it for health reasons or whether you want to add booze and just pretend like you're being healthy. <laughs> right. And Wayne? Yeah, I think the, the shrubs are... Uh in my book, which came out uh, 11 years ago, I said uh, I talked about shrubs. In the which book is that? It's called "And a Bottle of Rum: History of the New World in Ten Cocktails." Okay, right. That's, that's the book I have a reference to. Yeah, go ahead. And uh, I, I mentioned in there I talked about the history of shrub cocktails, but then made the comment that I didn't think that anybody was going to be wanting to be drinking vinegar-based cocktails in the future. <laughs> I have to go back and revise that. But well, I think that the shrubs. I mean, they started up. Two basic reasons. One, they were a preservative. You could pick all the berries when they were fresh, put them in vinegar, which was freely available and cheap, and you had that raspberry flavor all through the winter when you wouldn't have had that before refrigeration. And also, uh, it was tart. Uh, you couldn't get lemons uh, and limes all year round, only when they were shipping them up from the south. So if you lived in the north, a little of that with some sugar gave you that same sort of effect as if you had a fresh squeezed lime in your drink. Absolutely. So interesting. You know, I actually do use um, uh, vinegar in, in my cooking often, so I make a cranberry sauce 
um, uh, around the time of, for Thanksgiving, of course. And um, I learned my recipe for it from an artist named Linda Benglis, who's from Lake Charles, Louisiana. She travels all over the world now, but that's where she's from. And, and, and I've, I've used her recipe for cranberry sauce ever since I made it with her one time for Thanksgiving. And a little bit of um, vinegar um, is an ingredient that seems to just kind of, I don't know, kind of spark the whole thing. And um, I use balsamic vinegar, just a little bit of balsamic vinegar. And um, uh, yeah, I, I can see how, and I sometimes also, of course, put it in various kinds of seasoning for things. But um, so uh, where, where is this, this fascination with cocktail going? Is this a trend that's, it's, it's, uh, is it going to burn out in a few years? Or are we on to something that's going to last another maybe half a century or forever? And also, I want to go back even further beyond what we call the cocktail. So what were people drinking that were ingredient mixes like this way back? How about ancient times? You know, the Greeks, you sort of always hear about the things that they drank. I don't know what they drank. And the Romans, what, what um, uh, again, from, from Wayne, I'd love to hear, um, how, well, you said a bottle of rum. What about rum? Oh, by the way, Gosling's rum, right? which is um, that really rich kind of rum. I tasted that for the first time in Bermuda. I've been hooked on that ever since. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's a common experience. Um, way back, people, well, people drank anything that they could ferment. There was, distillation was not as common, you know, certainly not until really the medieval times when the alchemists started playing around with it. The Greeks and Romans would have had wine, and they would have uh, spiced it. Um, they would have had different things that they could have bring in from the the Middle East and beyond, things they grew locally, uh, add rosemary and things to their wine just to give it a little extra flavor. Uh, when you get up into the 18th and 19th century, when there's more transatlantic trade and global sailing, you got punch was the sort of the standard drink uh, for the, about a couple hundred years, and that was basically just a, a spirit that was mixed with uh, citrus and sugar and some spices and some water to make it a more of a, a lengthier drink, something you could fill a bowl with. Uh, and that persisted for years and years, and then eventually evolved into something that you could do by the glass. You know, something like a, a whiskey sour is really a, a tiny punch. But so they, they're, 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 I mean, there's, we, you could do a whole show on what people were drinking prior to uh, the cocktail of my name arising in, in 1806. Well, let's jump back to the present, and let me ask you all to tell me uh, what are the most popular um, cocktails now? I guess um, not necessarily the, the most conventional and repeated, but what are some of the more intriguing ones that are catching catching on? I, um, I don't know. It seems that there has been such a huge resurgence in the old-fashioned the past five, seven, ten years now uh, to the point that it's almost being treated like the martini where everybody has, like, specific ideas of how they want their old-fashioned, and it's it's quickly becoming up to the bartender to be like, okay, do you want the muddled, do you want the sugar cube, do you want sweet, do you want heavy on the bitters, like, how how do you like this drink? The same way that the martini quickly became, like, I want it dirty up with a lemon twist. And uh, it, as a whiskey drinker, it's, it's, really, it's really heartwarming to see... Uh, that classic old-fashioned uh, come into vogue again and uh, see people so passionate about it. 
Where does that passion come from? What is it all about? Why are we so fascinated with this? Why is this something that's important to us? Well, I feel like with the, um, you know, obviously with the Internet, with all these cocktail books being written, with all the magazines writing about it, people are able to research more. And as food, as the food trends change, they get the palates ready for what cocktails bring along. And so people are more into interesting food from other cultures. So now that they're kind of there in their palate, the cocktail world sort of comes in right after it. And I, I think that people, it, it works well with people's, whatever what people sometimes are calling mass customization, is that people, they don't want to just go in and get, I'll just have a margarita and the only choice is salt or no salt. I think I've, I've talked to bartenders who say, you know, people, when they started, Ten years ago, they people would come in and say, "What should I drink?" and they want to be educated. They said, "Now more people come in. They say, here's what I'd like. Do you have any of this type of bourbon? I'd like this type of bitters.'" And they sort of have their own drink. And part of it's because that's something that's sort of crafted for themselves, and part of it is because it sort of conveys to those along the bar that there's somebody here who knows what they're talking about. So there, I think there's some that sort of personalization that's very easily done with cocktails, where you, you can't go into a restaurant and tell the chef how you want your tenderloin. And I suppose it's probably also there's always a little bit of kind of one-upsmanship going on, and so people want to show that they are connoisseurs of this, and so they want to outshine the other in ordering more interesting drinks or um, asking for their their own personal permutations on on drinks. Waits, would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I am. Like at the end of the day, uh, when we go out to eat, when we go out to drink, it's uh, it's a splurge that we're taking for ourselves. We're taking that time to be treated to an experience, and uh, it's it's been so beautiful to witness over the past ten years. Uh, the consumer, the guests, be more engaged in that experience. And uh, yeah, and not going out for sort of just a routine uh, dinner. Yeah. And of course, if you live in New Orleans, I, I, I'm so spoiled from living here, and when I go back to New York now, and my friends take me to the latest hot restaurant in New York, and I kind of go, hmm, really? (laughs) Because my palate is just so um, enriched by uh, the recipes of New Orleans. And that actually raises another question for me. So to what extent is the culture of the South uh, a major factor in in um, um, how we eat and the cocktails. I mean, I think New Orleans food has influenced the whole country. You just oh, can't the whole world. Yeah. Right. Really. Let's let, 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 tell me about that. Um, no, it's uh, it's strange. Uh, like I didn't grow up in New Orleans. I'm from Georgia originally, but uh, I remember being like six years old and my mom running a catering company out of her house, and you know. My mom is an amazing southern cook, but it, I wouldn't call her, like, you know, she's not going to be winning any Michelin stars anytime soon. But to get to witness at that young age somebody putting that passion and craft into the cuisine, which I feel is exemplary of the South, it's, uh, it, it was very inspiring. And, and, and so why the South? Why is that characteristic of the South? I mean, I have my own theory, which has to do with it being more of an agrarian culture, and so you're dealing with fresh ingredients all the time, more so than, you know, um, we're, we're sort of a supermarket world in, in the northern states uh, as of this point in the century. Oh, yeah. We're, uh, we have the entire bounty of the earth, like, right here at our footsteps, 
And so much of Southern culture and Southern cuisine is focused on that seasonal aspect. Like we grow fresh, we use fresh, we manage to pickle the rest so that we can use the rest of the year. But especially down here in New Orleans, there's always fresh produce, there's always fresh game, and that is something incredibly special, which I feel has uh, fed into the culinary scene here in town. Jennifer? New Orleans specifically is such a port town, and it always has been. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you get, think of, you know, we Such were French. We were, mm -hmm. yeah, cultural influence, you know, French, Spanish, English, African. and Haitian. Yeah, exactly. So we were already a melting pot of flavors and cultures, and the more the people come in and visit, the more it just sort of gets taken back out into the world as much as it was brought into us to begin with. And how about how about you, Dwayne? I mean, well, I, think, um, uh, I agree. I agree. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You. I, I agree with uh, with both Jennifer and Wade that, that definitely there's that sort of influence that's going out. And I see it in drinks that, uh, I mean, ten years ago you could travel around, nobody really knew what a sazerac was, but now sazeracs have cropped up everywhere. They've become sort of a defining drink, and people really do associate it with New Orleans. I know. I, I some years ago, I, five, six years ago, I was in. Bangkok, and I went to a craft cocktail bar there, and the bartender asked where I was from. I said New Orleans, and he bowed and said, "Ah, the Sazerac." Sort of surprised <laughs> me, but, but I think uh, that that uh, that's one of those those foundational drinks that when people decide they're going to take bartending seriously, they really want to understand the Sazerac, which is one of his all-time great drinks. Gin fizz is another one. By the way, I just have to share with you um, uh, another little. Uh, artifact in my life that uh, reflects my fascination with all this. So I happen to have, um, and I don't remember how I did this, but I scarfed one of the tables from the old Sazerac bar. The actual table? The little round tables that say Sazerac, and then they have around the, I don't know if you've ever seen one of these. The only other person I know who has one is William Goldring, and, of course. Uh, <laughs> right. And um, it says Sazerac in the middle, and then around it has little pictures of the various famous drinks, including, of course, the Sazerac, but also the Ramus Gin Fizz and the Mint Julep and so on and so on. It's in my um, foyer. I had actually at one point thought that I would turn my foyer into kind of a, a little um, piano bar room because it's got a piano. Yes. It's got these, you know, rich um, pink-red walls. And, uh, you know, in my house I have so much artwork that everything accumulates, so nothing has a, a, a um, particular character. But um, that's how much I'm into this stuff is that I have that. And, oh. and actually I really wanted several of those tables. So, by the way, if anybody in the audience <laughs> has one, you know, give me a call, 218-4807. I, I'm looking. I really want three. That's my that's my goal. If you have a fourth, I'll take one. I know. I, I was about to say <laughs> that as well. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever seen it? Have you, Wayne? Have you seen one? I have not. I've not seen one of those. I've heard of them. Okay. Well, I, I have all your emails, so I'm going to send you a picture of mine, so you know what we're talking. Yes, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's very sort of 1930s, 40s. It's uh, again, it has a kind of pink red um, uh, background color, and then all these wonderful drinks. All right, so where are we going? I, I started on that subject and I got waylaid, but um, how does this evolve? What's what's next? That's the ultimate question. <laughs> uh, Taylor, I mean, Tales of the Cocktail this year was was crafting your future, and 
unfortunately I didn't get to hear any of the seminars on this, but quite honestly, most of the things that I heard is that everybody's going to more natural things, healthier things, you know, like we still want to drink, but we do want to be more conscious about it. We want to, you know, it's the same, again, same with our food. We want to know what's going into it to be right with our body, but yet still imbibe at the same time. Absolutely. And, um, I don't know, I, I also did not get to go do much of the Tales shenanigans. You know, it's uh, the life of a New Orleans bartender. Everybody comes down for Tales, and you just work the entire time. Oh, I'll bet you do. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm sure that it uh, adds a, a few dollars to our um, economy. But that's the hopes every single year. There's a lot of year. people in town, yeah, from all over the world, right? From all over the world, yeah. I don't know, Tales is always such a special event because I, I kind of feel like the rest of the globe gets a chance to see, like, not only what the big boys are doing, but what we here in New Orleans are doing. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's it's always very humbling uh, being a part of Tales, uh, seeing people just fawn over them, just like, this is, this is what we do every single day down here in New Orleans. Like, this is what our life is. This is our passion. This is our craft. Uh, as far as where the direction of everything is going, I, I agree with Jennifer. It's uh, it's all about like u- using natural ingredients, like <laughs> getting a little bit healthier. You know, uh, like not just seeing this as a pastime, but as a lifestyle. Yeah, we certainly have that lifestyle. Uh, Wayne, what's your feeling about the future? Do I have you? Oh, I lost him for a minute. Okay, we'll cu- we'll catch back up with him. So, yeah, um, and then the other thing about uh, drinking in New Orleans is, of course, the environments um, so th- that we create. So th- there's nothing like going into the old Absinthe Bar on um, on Bourbon Street. And, of course, uh, on uh, during the carnival season, that's a, a, a must-stop for various wandering crews when – um, Hermes has their big uh, function at Antoine's on, I think it's the Thursday before Mardi Gras, and the guys all with their cigars roam the streets. Old Absence Bar is a must-stop. And, of course, now the bar uh, at Antoine's, um, which is a new development, is, is a, is a must-stop. And not to mention Lafitte's. And, and where else? Two Jags. Uh, two Jags hosts the Mardi Gras crew. I may... Augustine's going to get upset with me about this, as well as Poppy Tooker. Um, I believe it's Crew d'etat, um have their meetings uh, there at, at Two Jags. But, oh, gosh, I mean, Sazerac Bar obviously is a stop for people and for Mardi Gras. I have my favorite spots, but I'm not telling because I want to be able to get into them. Oh, no, you have to. <laughs> That's not fair. You need to share some of your favorite spots. They'll survive. You'll still be able to get in. So let's hear them. Um, in my wanderings through the French Quarter, I always love to stop into Harry's Corner Bar. Which? Um, Harry's Corner Bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, then I have my Frenchman's spot because, I mean, I, I love DBA. I love to pop in and hear some music and, you know, kind of dip out from the crowd while being a part of it. Now, Frenchman Street is a pretty classic example, going back to what you were saying about an experience. Um, our, our drinking in, in, in New Orleans definitely is about experience. It's definitely married to music. And food. I mean, it, it's really uh, um, it, it's a it's a comprehensive experience. It's not just 
I, as I said in my newsletter, I'm not, I don't go to bars. I don't just go and sit in the bar. I just don't. I do, um, let's say if I'm waiting for dinner at Galatoire's and, and I'm, my table's not ready or something, I'm going to be at the bar. But that's the only time. I don't really uh, just sit in the bar. But our bars, I believe, in New Orleans, again, are a little bit more exotic and um, themed and um, rich in their either history or a, a new uh, way of creating an environment. And um, uh, I think we have, uh, do we have Wait back? I'm back. Okay, so what is uh, what? What are some of your favorite? Um, I guess we call them also watering holes. Uh, I say the my regular spot is Arnaud's French Seventy Five, uh, right off of Bourbon Street there at the back of Arnaud's mm-hmm. restaurant. I like I like everything about it. It was, it was actually the first bar I went to the first time I came to New Orleans, and I've been going back since. The bartender has not changed since my first trip in there. Uh, it's got a great mix of sort of modern and historic, and they, they, their cocktail list is built around classics. Uh, some of them are new classics that the staff has put together, but that's, uh, that, that, that sort of suits my style, and I like that. Another one that doesn't get as much attention is at the International House Hotel called Loa. Uh, Say that again? There's uh, Loa, L-O-A, mm-hmm. uh, off, the, off the lobby of the uh, Inter- International House Hotel on... Right. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, they have they have great drinks. The bar the bar manager there, Alan Walters. Uh, I mean, he's, he's he goes and hunts around the uh, Hong Kong market across the river. He goes to City Park and brings in pine needles, makes infusions from that. He says he does wonderful stuff there. So I, I think those are sort of the opposite ends of the spectrum: one classic and one culinary, but uh, they're both great. Oh, I, I mean, pine needles from City Park. I mean, <laughs> where, where? Try it. I'm telling you, try it. It's good. Yeah, they make great drinks. And they're, they're on camp. They're over on camp. camp. Okay, yeah. I meant yeah. camp yeah. street, yeah. right, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, um, this is just, this is so much fun. I just love it. And, and, and I have to say, I'm, I'm hearing what you said, um, Wait about, you know, getting hooked on something kind of uh, from an early experience. So for me, when I first came to New Orleans, I was um, about 30 years old, and I ran, had a crowd that I ran with, and they were definitely the kind of people who would go hang out at Galatoire's on a Friday for hours. And so, um, again, that's where I first experienced um, the old-fashioned that I still to this day drink. And, and what's that drink? Oh, what is that drink with um, white wine and... Uh, I, I hate having bad memory moments, but um, the little uh, uh, red, uh, some, something red that goes into the white wine. What is that drink? Oh, Cassis? Yep, thank you. So it's called a Chablis Cassis. A Cure Royale if it's champagne. Right. Never had that before. Love that. Drink that on occasion. And um, so, yeah, your experience to some extent, your preferences to some extent are. are Expressed through your own personal history, and then you get just like I got hooked on bourbon in college. I mean, it was, as I say, people didn't drink bourbon back in my day, and that was a while ago, but um, uh, certainly it's become a, a dominant. Um, um, so here's what I want to ask you: um, How does um, how does something like tales? Uh, change things. I mean, Tales, again, is such a big event. And as you said, it's humbling because you have so many people who come in with so many rich ideas. Um, does it, what's the kind of impact? What's the lingering effect of it? Um, I definitely feel like without 
question after every tales, I know how to be a better bartender for the next year uh, because I am engaging with uh, these individuals that have so much knowledge and it shows me where I'm at my weakest and what I can do to improve in my craft mm. so that I can you know, constantly be better the next day. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Jennifer? Well, if you think of how it all started, it was a walking tour of New Orleans classic cocktail bars, um, especially in the French Quarter. But it was, I think, sh 10 people, I think I remember, were on the first one where they just oh hit four or five uh, classic cocktail bars. And it was about showcasing the history of New Orleans and their cocktails in a time where it's generally very slow. And it just sort of built up and built up and more people found out about it. And more people wanted to learn about that classic cocktail culture and the things that we'd been doing for a very long time um, continuously, whereas some markets were just learning about it. And the more people found out, the more they wanted to engage, and the more people that realized that bartending in the spirit world is actually a career. <laughs> that you know, it just, that's how it all sort of took off. It just, it was just how do we showcase and preserve the New Orleans cocktail culture? And then everyone came in and sort of, again, the gumbo brought in their own and we all learned from each other. I was, I, I've been sort of involved in, in tales for the last four years, but, but just because of the city, you know, again, I worked at a bar for a long time where people would come in from tales from uh, other parts of the country. Nobody knew of Fernet for, you know, five or six years ago in New Orleans, and then all of a sudden everybody from out of town is asking us for it. I'm like, I don't know what you're asking of. And now it's like a, a staple. Like, it's just everybody knows. Yeah, it. I, I, well, not me. <laughs> so what What was that? Uh, Fernet Branca um, is uh, it's a, it going back to the bitters category, and it's a similar category to what Campari is. It's just another digestif, another bitter category uh, product. But. Turned up to 11. Yeah, turned up. <laughs> exactly. Think Jägermeister, but more refined. <laughs> yes. Jägermeister for adults. Well, that's what we're going to call it. <laughs> okay. Uh, Ways, how about you? I think, uh, I think Jennifer's right. That a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of interchange of ideas. The, the, the festival really started out with that link to the classics, with the, the authors and the writers who were coming in were really rediscovering some of these lost cocktails, and people who were interested in that arrived. And it's grown since there, and now it's shifted to, there's still that element, the historic element there, but it's also very strong and, and uh, sort of uh, more modern management, how to make money, how to make connections between the servers and the, the uh, customers, things like that. It's really learned, you know, a lot of people have come into it because they, uh, probably everyone comes into it, starts a bar for a different reason, but they all have to learn how to get up to speed. They all have to learn about what came before so they don't make the same mistakes. And it's a lot more, it's, more, it's gone from uh, more subculture than to pop culture now to more business management. This is my 12th year this year and I've sort of seen that evolution a bunch of sort of uh, cranky subculture types that just were fascinated <laughs> by bitters and ice. And now it's a much broader view. People want to know, how do I make a profit? How do I maintain forecasts? What uh, what's going to be coming down the pike next year that I should be paying attention to? Is it American brandy? Is it new American-style gin? All these things. So it's, a lot, it's just much broader and more, a little more business-oriented now. Than so that actually leads me to uh, another subject that I wanted to touch on because... As a result of this increased interest in these more complicated 
um, and, and experiential cocktails, let's say, um, the spirit companies have been challenged to improve their products. And so you have these kind of very special premium uh, versions of um, whatever, whether it's gin or vodka or bourbon and so on. And like the bourbon I was talking about earlier, this Detroit bourbon, which is um, very strong and very flavorful, um, they're expensive, but they're interesting. And so, um, you know, how do you see this uh, evolution of the spirits themselves um, going further? Well, the the, uh, the trend is, uh, the, the, it's a regrettable word, but premiumization is the word that everybody in the spirits industry talks about. If you look at the numbers, all the bottom shelf brands, the cheaper stuff, your, your Taka Vodka, your other stuff, that it doesn't cost very much, those sales have been declining uh, in terms of um, uh, how much is being sold. But the uh, but the other uh, premium stuff, the stuff that, you know, the, the $12 bottle stuff seems to be dropping off, but the $30 bottle stuff is gaining people move towards higher quality. I think it's the same thing you've seen with, you know, uh, Dunkin' Donuts becoming, turning into a Starbucks culture. You see that in the McDonald's, people being drawn to five guys, slightly more upscale burgers. Everything's sort of getting to the premiumization. Beer, certainly with the micro beers, and now it's spirits. It's going to the same thing. Um, I'm truly and genuinely shocked was just how quickly the uh, the craft spirit culture has exploded over the past couple of years, especially here in New Orleans. Like, you go back five years, and there was, like, one microbrewery, and now you've got you know, uh, Toulouse Red, you've got uh, Bristow and Cathead out of Mississippi, uh, you've got local distilleries making incredible gins and vodkas and using the local produce in order to uh, do something special with it and uh the fact that it's happening on such a micro scale at this point uh at least here in new orleans uh, leads me to believe that just like the craft brewery scene it's going to continue exploding on a micro scale across the nation and we're going to see a uh, just this huge wave of interesting like middle priced uh, products that are unlike anything else and have that regional flavor to them yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with legislation lightening up because of these craft breweries, and some of them are challenging the proof that they could uh, have, they could make their beer at. Um, some of it was encroaching on such high alcohol content that they were getting into the spirit side, and they like had to approach and their local, you know, lawmakers and be like, these laws are antiquated to prohibition. How do we, you know? We're, we have this local economy. We're trying to, you know, rise up, and that opened the door for these craft distilleries, and made it easier. I think, you know, the further we get away from prohibition times and realizing that there can be craft, uh, craft well-crafted spirits, well-crafted beers, um, that's just opening up the door for, um, you know, lots of new new things coming out. Um, Again, more localized. It's like, what produce can you get? What you know? What's in your market? In New Orleans and Louisiana, we have a lot of rice-based spirits, whereas other people have wheat and corn. So it depends on what you want to make. And and you know, obviously, sugarcane was how you know, raw, you know, Wayne will, will touch on how sugarcane and you know where you get it and where it, how it produces. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's, I think it is a, a lot of antiquation that is coming away from the legislation that's 
I'm getting movement. Well, we're coming close to the end of the show. I can't believe it already because I have so much more I really wanted to touch on. But um, I, I, I want to, uh, since we are sort of approaching the end, I want to talk about um, the, 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 I guess you would call it a drink, but it's a combination of a, a, a drink and a, a, and a coffee. So um, the waiters at, at Galatoire's are always a little bit horrified to see me because um, at least eight out of ten times I am going to want Cafe Brulo at the end of my meal. And, and Cafe Brulo is a production. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's not just a, a drink. They bring out the big bowl, the punch bowl. They put in the liquors. They flame them. And then they add the coffee. And, I, you know, I have to admit that they, I only tried to make it maybe twice ever myself. And the only time I was successful was when I was already a little inebriated. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes that just loosens you up and you're less scared to try what you're trying to do, and um, yeah, I made a great Cafe Brulo once in New York for a party, but it was only when I was already rocking and rolling a little bit. I actually made a an, a cocktail that was the idea, the essence of a Cafe Brulo. I took those flavors and um, also combined like a Cafe Ole style, so it was an iced coffee drink with a whiskey. I don't remember what we used, but I infused those spice flavors that would be in a Brulot, I infused the cream with it. So it was a, a mash of, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. Turned out, it turned out really, and, and I didn't have to light anything on fire. Yeah. <laughs> oh, where's the fun in that? that well, sounds, you know. That sounds like safe, my next. Safety issues. Oh, no, I love that. That sounds like my next brunch. I love, I love that. Um, uh, wait, what, what about you? Any kind of end-of-the-party type drinks that you prefer? I, I, I'm all for the, the Cafe Brulot. Um, <laughs> That is a, uh, I mean, that, the thing about Cafe Brulot, which I like, is it's, it's, it's spectacle. Yeah, it's kind of like the, that's kind of like the um, Bananas Foster of the of cocktail the, side. That's showmanship. Yeah, Bananas Foster's drink. Or the shark attack, if you go to the <laughs> tropical <laughs> island. Urban. What, what is the shark <laughs> attack? <laughs> Uh, I'm not gonna, I don't want to ruin it. Yeah, for you, you should have one. Go to you Tropical Isle, get a shark. Bad attack. memories. <laughs> uh, the, the, the Tropical Isle on the corner of Bourbon and um, uh, Iberville? Toulouse, I think. I think Toulouse, yes. Okay. Uh, All right. I'll, uh, I'll have to uh, <laughs> add that to. You don't to. go for the drink, you go for the show. Go for the show. Okay. Um, well, guys, um, this has been a blast. And I just want to say how ironically I'm sitting here uh, with that beautiful book. We're all jealous. And it opened. I'm I sure know. Wayne has seen a version of this, but it, if he could if he could be, we're going to fight over it at the end of the It show. smells so nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, um, where I've gotten these books has been in old junk junky type antique shops yeah. and I don't know why but I, I always check out the books lightly because I, I I also look for cookbooks that are interesting although as anybody that knows me will tell you I'm not much of a, I don't cook that much I just like cookbooks so I have a collection of them as well but alright so I just noticed the page that my book is the open to in the Savoy cookbook from 1930 guess what has a Sazerac cocktail recipe and here it goes. It's one lump of sugar. And that's, by the way, another one of the things that I love is all the different recipes for mint juleps and how you do them. It's just so much fun to see the different varieties. But um, Okay, so it's one lump of sugar, a dash of Angostura or Pecho bitters, one glass of rye or Canadian club whiskey. Stir well, 
strain into another glass that has been cooled, add one dash of absinthe, and squeeze lemon peel on top. What do you all think about that? Really, totally clear. Out of the book, throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> it's, pa- it's passable. What don't you like about that? Canadian whiskey just doesn't work. I know. True. I don't like, True story. I like Silly Canadian <laughs> nonsense. I don't like rye. I don't like rye or Canadian oh, no. whiskey. R- yeah, rye should be in the cocktail. Yeah, First it has to be in the rye, cocktail. Real rye. But there's a confusion because rye, Canadian whiskey is often referred to as rye. So there's, there's some confusion. Uh, interesting. You know, the very next recipe in here, however, maybe we'll, um, we'll uh, retrieve uh, your love from my book here. And so this is called the Scuff Law Cocktail. And it's one dash of orange bitters. One third whiskey, one third French vermouth, one sixth lemon juice, one sixth grenadine. Shake well and strain into a cocktail glass. What do you think? I'm all for that. I drink that. <laughs> okay, now I'm I'm gonna close with the recipe for my husband's Bob's bourbon, as he calls it. I, I I'm telling you, I have to find a better name for it, but. Um, this is my Friday night um, cocktail that we will sip on the porch um, under the uh, ceiling fan with our Border Collie and Australian in tow. Three parts Detroit bourbon, one part LaRue triple sec, five drops uh, Pecho bitters, one squeeze Clementine or Louisiana blood orange or Satsuma. What do you think? Yeah, yeah okay. Okay? That's, that's a classic. I mean, it's okay. based on a classic ratio, so there's... How you're going to go wrong with that? Well, listen. Sometime I'm going to invite you all to come over and share our, our TGIF um, cocktails, and you'll be able to eyeball this absolutely gorgeous book. I guess what I ought to try to do is maybe do some either screenshots or literally, um, you know, copy the book. Um, I guess I would think that the people who uh, did it originally are long gone, and I have some cutout thing in here, but no, it has nothing to do with that. Okay, I'm getting my little signal from Jazz, our engineer, that uh, time's up. And um, this was so much fun, guys. Thank you yeah, so thank much you. Thank you. for coming. And um, uh, I will try to make tales next year, but I'm going to have to look for one of you guys to be my companion because... Honored. I would be honored. Oh, great. I'm real easy to find. <laughs> well, Root Restaurant is the place to go. Jennifer is um, one of your guys, let's say, and wait. His book sounds like something that we all need to catch up on so that we can be sure to be the connoisseurs of this world that we should be if we live in New Orleans. Thank you all so much. And, um, well, I'll see you Friday. I don't know what I'm going to have to do for my Friday show now that I've done a Friday show. But um, (laughs) Friday at 3, we're on again. Crosstown Conversations, Gene Nathan on WBOK, Real Talk for Real Times. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Mm